Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Good to be with you today. If you're looking for ideas on what to buy in the back, um, you're welcome to buy anything with white chocolate or any of Ken's Pops Pops, and you can just drop those off at my office this week. If you're in like that diet phase and you don't think you can do it yourself, you are welcome to do that. I will not reject anything, and it's for a good cause, right? So you might as well. Well, more than that, it's good to be with you today as we finish up this series uh, that we've been calling Rebuild, in which we've been walking through for, for 12 weeks now, we've been walking through now the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Looking in on this particular time, at this particular point in the history of God's people, when God set about to do just that, to rebuild them from the ground up. Because if you remember the story, that's what they needed. Having been kicked out of the land that, that God had, had, had set apart for them, because rather than walk with God, they walked away from God, and so God made them walk. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, though, are all about God bringing them back and rebuilding when they deserved it the least, their identity and worship and joy, their confidence and conviction, their action, their work, their fear, rebuilding their devotion and, and their commitment to him. And ultimately, as we saw last week, rebuilding their community, the city of God. But to what end? That's the question for today. To what end? Because if this book is just about what God did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and in the days of Zerubbabel before them, the story should be done. The story should have been cut short at the, the end of chapter 12 or maybe just those beginning verses in chapter 13. And it should have stopped with where we left off last week with God rebuilding the, the city of God with the praise of God, reaching to the, to the high heavens and, and covering the whole earth, perhaps even with the people of God responding to the word of God in worship of God. We should have stopped. But that's not where the book ends. Because as much as this book is about what God did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is, in some sense, even more so what God was planning to do in the days that were still to come. Which is what we're going to see as we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 13 and see how God rebuilds, consider how God rebuilds longing. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there again to Nehemiah chapter 13, where we left off, where we're going to pick up the story in verse 4. And I'm going to begin by reading it, just take about the five minutes it's going to take to read this chapter from verse 4 to the end, and I'd invite you to follow along with me as I do. From Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4 to 31. This is God's word. It says... Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, 
and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites that had not, had not been given to them so, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who, who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I, I commanded that the doors should be shut and, and gave orders that they should not be opened until the Sabbath was done. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites and they, that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the the many nations there was no king like him, and and he was beloved by his God, and, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Thus ends one of the most colorful passages in our Bibles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that in the end, You have remembered us and promised to remember us for good, not because of the good that we have done for you, but just like Brad was saying, because of the good that Jesus has done for us. And in this season of thanksgiving even, give thanks for for this above all else, that for as much as, as we are unable to do what needs doing, that you have not left us to look to ourselves or even to another Nehemiah, but have invited us to look through Nehemiah to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and rest. Amen. Well, I've been enjoying the process of raking leaves at home. Anybody else? Well, by enjoying too, right? Of course, I mean in some sense that I've been absolutely hating it, right? Because every time you rake the leaves, you turn around and there are more, right? Every time. You cannot get through it. And this season in particular seems to be especially bad. Raking one minute only to turn around and see that all the work that you have done has been somehow undone. But it's not that I don't like Raking, I do, really. I, getting my hands dirty, breaking a, a sweat, accomplishing something. It's just that part that you've done something that you couldn't help but was after you undone. Because you never actually finish raking, do you? You never actually finish because as soon as you finish, you look behind again. There's more leaves or a rainstorm comes ripping through just to knock a few more piles off the the trees or or the weather we've been having. A snowstorm comes through 
And even if there isn't a leaf left on the trees in your yard, a wind kicks up and blows all your neighbor's leaves onto it. It's just never done. That October through Christmas, my life, your life is defined by raking and raking and raking again. But you know what I mean even if raking isn't your thing, right? Because whether it's sweeping the kitchen or doing the dishes or changing a diaper, disciplining a child or, or, or making one more trip to the doctor's, we all know what it's like, one way or another, to be caught in that Groundhog Day cycle of needing to do again what you've already done because for some reason what you did somehow got undone. Which means we all know, at least a little bit, what it would have been like for Nehemiah. To after all he had done, all the, the life that he had devoted to it, and, and all he had worked to do over the course of some 12 years, to, to return to Jerusalem then after some time, the, the, the city that he had helped to rebuild, only to find that, that all the most significant things he had done had been undone while he was gone, while his back was turned. That raking and raking and raking again, the lawn was still covered with leaves. Which is what this final chapter in the book of Nehemiah is all about. How when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he finds that the, the people of God once again neglected, have neglected God's house. That they've neglected God's law and that they've ultimately neglected God. Neglected God's house, neglected God's law, and ultimately neglected God. How would you feel? And let's just take a moment to, to look at each of these to really get into to what Nehemiah was going through along with Nehemiah's response to that before we ask what an ending like this has to do with us. First, how God's people once again neglected God's house, which is what Nehemiah finds when he returns to Jerusalem, only to discover that instead of attending to God's house as they had promised, Eliashib the priest, very likely Eliashib the high priest, had instead led the people to profane it. So we read in verse 4 that having been appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and an appointment that Nehemiah very likely back in chapter 12 very likely oversaw, that having been appointed to that position, that because of his relationship to Tobiah, the Ammonite, most likely through Mary, marriage, this Eliashib actually empties out one of those chambers and allows Tobiah to move in. Imagine it like emptying out the closet over here to let somebody, uh, somebody a proclaimed enemy of the house of God to move in. A chamber that was meant to, to store the offerings of God's people, the, the stuff that had been offered to God to sustain the work of God. Now, all that stuff put to the curb so that Tobiah can back his U-Haul up 
and make himself at home. And don't miss the fact that this is the same Tobiah who, despite his good Jewish name, had been a, a servant to Sanballat the Horonite, who together were so displeased back in chapter 2 when Nehemiah showed up in the first place because someone had finally come to seek the welfare of God's people. Tobiah, who in chapter 4 had jeered at them and despised them and had joined in the mockery of them, saying of the, the wall they were building, do you remember it? If a fox goes up, the wall will break down. Tobiah, who in chapter 6 went so far as to plot their ruin. Now the same Tobiah is given a, a city center apartment. And not just downtown, right? Not just within the walls downtown. Within the, the, the confines of the temple. Not just within the walls that he so ridiculed. No, a luxury, ensuite residence within the walls of the temple. Moving in, making himself at home, changing the address at the post office, stiffening, uh, siphoning off the, the, the electricity right? Not even having to pay for the internet to be installed. Just moving in and, and putting the cable connection to, to good use while he's at it. Like a blood-sucking parasite. All because Nehemiah wasn't there to stop it. To no fault of his own, just the that after 12 long years of rebuilding, verse 6 tells us that Nehemiah had gone back to Babylon as he had promised the king, back to his former job. Because remember, that's as a servant of the king, that was the, that was the, the commitment that he had made. Pity, though, that requesting leave and returning to Jerusalem, he returns only to discover that all his work had been undone. And look for a moment at how Nehemiah responds in verse 8. And see if you can sympathize with him a little bit when he says, And I was angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I, I put it to the curb. Which in Hebrew means he threw it out. Not unlike Jesus would do some 500 years later that in that same temple when he turn over tables of the money changers, drive them out with a whip of cords. Can you sympathize? And it says Nehemiah then gave orders to have the chambers cleansed, literally purified, and, and brought back all the stuff that had been put in storage which those chambers had been made for. But in doing so, notice that Nehemiah finds that the, the people had neglected God's house also by, by failing to give their part to it, which is so often how it goes, right? We invite evil in, and then there's no place for good. There's no room left. So, so the good is just sort of cut off, right? Which is why Nehemiah confronts the people saying, why is the house of God forsaken? Because remember, that was the that was the climax of, of their renewal of the covenant back in chapter 10 when they, had, they came under the, the conviction of God's word that, that they would not, they said, they would not neglect the house of their God. 
But as they had done so many times before, no surprise here, here they are doing it again. So Nehemiah gets to raking, gathering them together once more, putting everything back in order, ultimately praying what? Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember what? Remember me and my good deeds. Which sounds a a little bit like Nehemiah is at the end of his rope, doesn't it? Because this isn't quite the prayer that he was praying at the beginning of the book. He seems to be slipping somewhere. A little like a Hail Mary prayer, if you ever heard one, right? That's, that's the football term, right? But it, I mean, it's a Catholic thing, too. Um, but it's a little bit like a Hail Mary prayer, right? I want to move on, though, and look at how God's people hadn't just neglected God's house, but also, second, how they neglected God's law. That they had neglected God's law, and specifically the Sabbath, which again had been a central part of that covenant renewal back in chapter 10. Just, just listen to what they had said. That if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. That's what they had said back in chapter 10. Again, under the conviction of God's word, making a covenant renewal before God. Why? Because this was God's law. And God's law for their good. Because we were made to rest in God. That's what Sabbath is. It's a rest and to regularly remember, to be reminded in the rhythm of our lives that that we're not the ones who, who called the universe into being or the ones who keep the world spinning on its axis. So that that each week as we step back from the grind of our daily lives, we would do so as an act of worship of the one who, who never steps back from his. Not that now this side of the cross we're in the same way under the, 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 the Sabbath law, but still that that that's reflected in our lives. And the people had recognized back then as, as much as back in chapter 10. They had, they had recognized this, saying that no matter what the nations did around them or even among them, they would keep the Sabbath. But after Nehemiah cleanses the temple, he sees verse 15 that this couldn't be further from the facts because there are people in Judah not only treading out the wine presses on the Sabbath and harvesting grain and loading up donkeys and preparing for the business of the week ahead, but there are also those carrying that business out on the Sabbath. And what the nations were selling, God's people were buying, turning good things like food into ultimate things which is really what's wrong with the picture here, isn't it? That the fact that they couldn't step away from this stuff for one day a week proved that these good things had for them become ultimate things. Food in this case, or, or for those selling it, the, the thought of turning a profit. For you, though, maybe it's something else. 
some good thing that you can't just put down to, to focus for a minute on the, on the one great thing, on the giver rather than the gift. So Nehemiah rebukes them and says in verse 17, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning again the Sabbath. Which must have been just one more blow to Nehemiah's personal morale, don't you think? Like the, the kid who just got punished, who, who, who just got over it, and who just, you just hugged, right? And you just set them back on their feet and dried their eyes, but who isn't even out of the room yet, and they're doing it again. I mean, come on. Can't a guy get a break? You could feel this for Nehemiah, right? Can't a guy just get a break? But Nehemiah isn't content even to simply rebuke. Look at it. He goes so far as to take the matter into his own hands, just like a, a parent who, if, you, if he can't take the temptation out of the kid, maybe at least he can try to take the temptation out of the room, right? Here he goes. So Nehemiah bars the gates on the Sabbath and, and even threatens the, the merchants who don't seem to be picking up what he's laying down, saying what in verse 21? If you don't stop, I will lay hands on you. Which is basically his like dirty Harry, go ahead, make my day. Or maybe it's his, his Liam Nielsen, right? I, I will find you and I will kill you, right? I will lay hands on you, he says. And then he says, I commanded the, the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And he prays, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Which is quite a different prayer than he began with. Do you remember? Not, not here, not in this chapter. I mean way back in chapter 1 when we first met him. This is, it's not all that bad. Remember this also according to your greatness, the greatness of your steadfast love. But, but remember back in chapter 1, when we first met him, when Nehemiah prayed, Oh God, who keeps covenant with those who keep his commandments, remember your word that if we return to you and keep your commandments, you will bring us back. Praying that outside of the promised land. Nehemiah wouldn't pray that now, though. Because God's already brought them back. And they've already proved that they're no better at keeping commandments now than they ever were. So he prays what? At least remember me. Doing your business. I'm trying here. I'm trying. At least remember me. Neglect of God's house and the neglect of God's law however, are just merely two symptoms of a greater sickness, a third neglect, the neglect of God himself. Which really comes to the fore in the final scene of this book when Nehemiah finds that his people had not just allowed these 
foreigners with their foreign gods. And remember, that's the point. Not that they were foreigners, because at any time you could give up your foreignness and come to the one true and living God. Everyone was welcome to worship the one true and living God, but allowed these foreigners and their foreign gods, not only to live among them or to, to do business with them, but these people had went so far as to marry them, which meant that in a sense, God's people had gone so far as to marry their gods. So Nehemiah says, verse 23, that in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, all with their own gods. And he says, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people, which is important. Why? Not because he doesn't want them to be multilinguistic, right? That's not the, the, the point here, Bi bilingual, right? That's not his point. Why is this important? Because the language of God is how we know God, through the language of God's book. But a generation into this, and they can't know God because they can't read the book. So Nehemiah says, and I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. I laid hands on them. Which it's just worth saying is narrative, not normative. Right? This is narrative, not normative. It's understandable, but not necessarily admirable. Because you remember when Ezra had similarly come up against this issue himself, what did he do? The, the man of God, the scribe of God's word. He pulled out his own hair as an outward sign of an inward agony. Do you remember? But he never once coerced anybody to act out of their own character. He showed the offense with their character, but never coerced. Yet Nehemiah goes around pulling out everyone else's hair and beating them. And, and what does it say? Making them take an oath. Ezra made the people take an oath too. It's the same wording here, but, but he only does it after the evidence of true remorse and desire to repent. He doesn't push it on them. Nehemiah does. And frankly, I can understand this. I can understand the feeling. I, I get it. But it doesn't make it right. Nehemiah seems to call for an oath without any of that. Why? Because knowing they had been in this exact same place before, like Frodo and Sam going in circles. He was grasping at one last ditch effort to break out of it. And for good reason, right? Because like he says in verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among them any nations, there was no king like him, no one like Solomon, and he was beloved by God. Remember Solomon's other name, Jedidiah, beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin, to neglect God. 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Again, not because this is an issue of race. It's an issue of religion. Not, not about the color of one's skin, but about one's who's sitting on the throne of one's heart. An issue, if you read on, that had even come to compromise the family of the high priest himself. No wonder he's handing things out to Tobiah. The high priest whose grandson had married the daughter of Sanballat. So Nehemiah says, verse 30, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And I, and I, and I, and I, remember me, O oh my God, for good. Because what I've done, Nehemiah says, and what I've tried to do, even though having raked the leaves, the moment I turned back, I saw that all I did was undone. What a disappointment that must have been. What a disappointment that must have been to have returned to Jerusalem only to find the, the once again neglect of God's people for God's house and God's law and God himself. But seeing what Nehemiah thought about all of this makes me wonder what God thought. It makes me wonder what God thought. After all, it was God's house and God's law and God that they neglected. But I have a nagging sense, thinking through that, a nagging sense concerned, I think, by the sweep of redemptive history. That rather than flip out like Nehemiah, God just wasn't that surprised by it. Wasn't that surprised and wasn't that stressed out. Sure, disappointed, certainly angry that his people were once again wandering away from him, angry for himself and angry for them, that they weren't getting the good that he was, the great one. But not surprised and not stressed out. Not least because Nehemiah was only part of the plan. You see that? Nehemiah was only part of the plan, which is why chapter 13 even exists. Why the anticlimax of this book is allowed to sit over history. Because Nehemiah was never meant to do what Nehemiah never could. Sure, he would rebuild the wall and rebuild the city, just like he said that the good hand of God was on him to do it. And those things would last for as long as they were supposed to. The wall there and the city as well and the temple within it. But Nehemiah never had it in him to rebuild beyond the wall the people within it. 
to revive hearts and restore life. That business was left to God and to the one God would someday send on his behalf. To Adam's seed. To Abraham's son. To Judah's heir. And to David's king. Which is why, just picking up on that last piece of this story, which is why David has shown up at every high point in these books. Have you noticed that? Which is why David has shown up at every high point. Not, no, not, not in the flesh, but at every idyllic moment where, where things are too good to be true in part because they were too good to be true. That David shows up when the people of God are extolling the grace of God for bringing them back. Like when they first laid the foundation of the temple back in the book of Ezra, right? Right where David's son had done it first. And it says they worship God according to the directions of David, singing the psalms of David, so that the shout was heard far away. And then again, when a second shout was heard, when the temple and city were both complete, and according to David, it says, the man of God, the, the choirs, it says, circled around the city of David and purified the people according to the command of David. But where is David now when Nehemiah returns? He's nowhere to be seen. Because through Nehemiah's inability to do what Nehemiah longed to do most, to, to not only rebuild God's city, but to rebuild God's people within it, God in his wisdom was rebuilding in his people the longing for the day that God would do it on their behalf. When David's heir would walk into that very same city, walk into that very same temple, walk into God's house and declare about his own body, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Who would show up not only to, to, to keep the Sabbath or to, to lay hands on those who didn't, to, to flip tables and to turn money changers away, but who would show up as the, the Lord of the Sabbath to, to offer Sabbath rest to all who were found in him and to woo the world back to the giver of all life's gifts and to break for good the lure of loving them over the one they were meant to point to. And to close out our series, let me just encourage you in three ways. First, with regard to God's house. Let me encourage you with regard to God's house to pursue its purity with all the tenacity with which Nehemiah did. And, and to do it both with regard to the house of your own body, if you've 
given yourself over and are in Christ and, and, and can, can say that that promise of, that Christ is also in you, to do it with your own body and to do it as well with the house of our local body. You know that's how the Apostle Paul talked, right? He talked of, uh, about the followers of Jesus um, after Jesus, that, that believers as well are now temples of the living God. As the, the house of God in whom God dwells by his spirit. And we, we ought to therefore just care about our bodies and and really about our whole lives as such. But, but Paul also talked, above, talked of the local church as a temple of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he, he said to the Corinthians, you, not we, you, them, right? They themselves meeting together, joined with one another, committed in covenant membership to one another. You are God's temple. And so both when it comes to our bodies and when it comes to our local body, there is a sense in which we ought to pursue their purity with all the tenacity of Nehemiah. Routing out whatever chambers there are that we've given over to evil Tobiah. Or maybe more to the point, to the evil one. Routing it out and giving once again our best for, for the body's continual upkeep and growth in breadth and in depth. Let me encourage you then first to pursue that with the tenacity of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah wasn't wrong to care about these things. Second, though, let me encourage you with regard to God's law, and specifically with regard to God's Sabbath, to as much as you care about that Nehemiah, that as Nehemiah, to, to, to look for that, as much as you care about it as Nehemiah, look for that in Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who showed up to do just that, to rest in Jesus and, and to lay hands uh, on everybody else who hasn't found that, but not to lay hands on them, but to, to point them to, to Jesus and to specifically identify, I'd encourage you, even this week, to identify in your own life and then to help others identify it in theirs, the areas of life that they've pursued gifts, they've pursued the gifts of life at the expense of losing touch with the giver of life. This is what the law is all about, to point us to the lawgiver, to bring us to the feet of the lawgiver so that we might know the lawgiver and live under him. So what are the areas of life where you are rather, though, pursuing the gifts of life at the expense of your relationship with the giver of life. What's gotten in the way? Because that's what the people were doing, right? Selling and, and buying on the Sabbath because they cared more about the food, more about turning a profit, some of them, than about the one they were supposed to be living for. So even go home today encourage you, make a list of the three or four areas where, where you most stumble with that, prizing the gifts over the giver, and then 
look up either in the back of your Bible or even on Bible.org. All of the passages that speak to that, take this week even to, to pick 10 or 12 of those and, and even to keep a journal about it, uh, about what you find and let the Word of God do the work of God just like it did in Nehemiah's day. Because that picture is not meant to be lost on us continually coming before the Word of God, that the work of God might be done in us, that the Spirit of God might move among us. Do that even this week. So with regard to God's house, with regard to God's law, then lastly, with regard to God. Let me encourage you to, at least for yourself, especially this side of the cross, and as we prepare to celebrate the Christmas season, let me encourage you to find your satisfaction in nothing less than God. And, and to do that in something as practical as who you go after, right? This is, this is just translate very well into our New Testament setting. It's something Paul was even still picking up on for those of you who have not yet found who you've gone after, for those who are going to go after somebody. Find your satisfaction first in God, not in the ones you're running alongside. And for those of you who have committed in a relationship, I'm talking about a marriage relationship here, to someone in who you don't go after, that's a satisfaction thing too, right? That you prize God above all else which means that that or is any other decision that you make are now going to be made through a different matrix, not with the question first and foremost, what do I want? But now with a different question, with the question of what does God want? Because we are meant to find our satisfaction in him. And thank God we can celebrate Christmas to that end, that Jesus came to satisfy just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, in our lives, turn our satisfaction to yourself. I pray that whether it's in the upkeep of your house, whether our body or our local body here of believers, that I we would find our satisfaction in you. And, and when it comes to your law and, and the fulfillment of that law in Jesus and the, the parts that, that continue through Jesus, through the cross, into our lives today, I pray still in that we would find our satisfaction in you, finding rest where this restless world has none, ultimately because we're running after you before anything else. I pray you do it, and I pray you do it to the honor of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.